Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio, Larry Kudlow joining us from outside the White House. Larry, great to catch up with you, sir, after a really solid payrolls report with an unemployment rate nicely in the single digits, south of 9%. And the number one question everyone's asking right now, Larry, what does it mean for the fiscal effort in Washington? Can you draw the line for us? Just join those dots. Uh, No, I, I really can't. I mean, the conversations are going on daily and will continue to go on. We still have the view. First of all, today's number, 8.4% unemployment. I just want to note, I think that shows that President Trump's idea of a generous unemployment assistance plan that he's put as executive order, but not necessarily an extravagant one. I I think he's been borne out to be exactly right. 8.4% unemployment is really the headline story of this uh, massive jobs uh, improvement report. Now, regarding the discussions on the Hill, you've got a continuing resolution discussion. Uh, You've got a CARES 2 Act, or whatever you call it, discussion. There are areas of agreement. There are wide areas of disagreement, however, on the size and scope. Uh, We have the view that a smart package, a well-targeted package, for example, helping small businesses with PPP extensions, uh, opening schools, COVID help, uh, you know, kids and jobs are our watchwords. Why don't we just pass a more modest package instead of a package that goes into multi-trillion dollars that we don't need and in the long term would be counterproductive? So we'll see, Jonathan. I don't want to forecast. I don't want to get in the way of the talks. The talks are continuing. But that's our basic point of view. If you agree on four or five things, let's go for it. Okay, let's stop dilly-dallying around. Let's go for it. But not the entire uh, left-wing agenda from the other side of the aisle. That's not acceptable. Larry, you've never been afraid of making a forecast, so I'm sure you can make a forecast on the economy with us right now. I'm trying to gauge from you where you think the economy is going and what that means for your policy stance. Do you think this is a self-sustaining recovery now, independent of the need of further stimulus? Yeah, look, uh, again, extending small business loans would be a good thing, and there's some other important facets. But I do think it's self-sustaining. I've said this before. What you have here is a housing boom, You have a retail sales boom. You have an automobile boom, strong consumer spending. And uh, we're getting, you know, we've recovered over half of the jobs we lost last winter. Um, Inventories have collapsed in the second quarter. I think they were down 300 billion. Um, So the way I see it, Jonathan, is to meet these demands, housing, construction, automobiles, consumers, retailers, and so forth, we're going to need to rebuild inventories. And that is going to add impetus to the second half growth, which will be at least 20%, and perhaps much more. I think the Atlanta Fed has uh, the third quarter at 30%. But anyway, uh, self-sustaining, yes. Uh, We're going to go on for quite some time. Next year is going to be a banner year for the economy and for jobs, assuming the policy regime is uh, pro-growth with incentives. So I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. Now, I will say we have much more work to do. We're not out of the woods. We have too many people unemployed, even though the numbers have improved radically and way ahead of uh, expectations on Wall Street. We have more work to do. There's still way too many unemployed and much too much hardship. I get that. But I think one has an optimistic rebound in mind. And I think, incidentally, the virus numbers are helping uh, quite a bit as they flatten down and hook lower. 
Larry, we talked about that hardship. We talked about the disparity beneath the aggregate numbers. As you and I have talked about a million times over the last several months, still a lot of pain out there. I'm just trying to gauge from you there as we have this discussion about this recovery, how comfortable you would be going into the back end of the year without an agreement with the other side of the aisle. Uh, look, we can live with it. We can absolutely live with it. Um, it depends on the package. You know, a bad package would not be helpful. A smart, good package, well-targeted, would be helpful, okay? If Congress wants to legislate longer-run unemployment assistance, if Congress wants to put in, let's say, benefits yep. for uh, bonuses for re-employment, uh, fine. If Congress wants to help out with funding a bit on uh, school openings, fine. That sort of thing would be extremely positive in my judgment. Uh, lengthening PPP for small business, sure. Do we absolutely need it? No, I, I'm not going to precondition anything here. What's good is good independently. What's not good is not good independently. Right now, the economy is on a self-sustaining recovery path, in my judgment, and we'll continue along those lines, and we'll continue to surprise on the upside. And I don't want anything to get in the way. I mean, look, one of the issues here, let's put it right on the table, it's like the elephant in the living room, is yeah. the other side of the aisle, the Biden team, wants a $4 trillion tax hike. Now, to me, coming off a deep and painful pandemic contraction, that is a terrible idea. I don't care whether you're a Keynesian or a supply sider or what. You wouldn't be picking uh, taxpayer wallets and purses. Stop pickpocketing their money. They need more money, not less money. I'd rather they had more money through tax cuts, tax cuts, which President Trump emphasizes, uh, rather than spending measures. But let people keep their own money. But the idea, and this is the uncertainty factor, with the election looming, and it looks like a toss-up right now, President Trump has gained about six or eight points after the convention, uh, the idea of a gigantic tax hike on individuals, uh, payrolls, companies large and small, that is uh, a hurdle for this self-sustaining recovery. So I think it's important to just put that right on the table. I don't understand it. I don't care. Left, right, Keynesian supply side. Who in their sure. right mind would be jacking up taxes by $4 trillion? And this idea that it's just rich people. First of all, rich people help investment a lot, and we like to reward success in the Trump years. But the second point is middle-class people will bear the brunt of any tax hike. That always happens when politicians say it won't. It always happens, and they'll go deep into everybody's pockets. Wrong policy. Larry, I'm not here to advocate for anybody, and I'm not here to talk about electoral politics with you as well. Last time I checked, the former vice president hasn't been elected to public office right now. You guys are running the government. You have to work with the other side to some degree, I guess. I want to talk about language with you. There's some language around aid for states. I keep hearing this language that we don't want to use money for bailouts of states. And I'm trying to understand, is there a distinction between state aid and state bailouts? And how do you draw that distinction? Well, I think the president has said it well a number of times. He doesn't want to bail out uh, inefficient government operations at the state and local level. We have, the administration has been very generous uh, in the prior packages uh, and other means of uh, providing aid to states, principally for COVID-related reasons, but also many other reasons, including, by the way, uh, equipment for COVID reasons and testing for COVID reasons and so forth. We've been very generous. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars have been injected into state and local governments. That's fine. We needed that. We were in a pandemic emergency, no question about it. On the other hand, one area, for example, the president has singled out uh, badly unfunded pensions at the state and local level. 
We don't believe a COVID package is the right method or the right vehicle uh, for that. There's a number of other spending issues uh, in the uh, other, t uh, other team's proposals that have nothing to do with COVID. By our calculations, over a third of their proposals are non-COVID-related proposals. That should be scrapped. So what President Trump would say is, if it's necessary and it's properly targeted, Jonathan, then we would probably see our way to a compromise. But at the moment, we're not there. And again, I repeat what the Chief Meadows has said, what Secretary Mnuchin has said. We agree on some areas. And if we could find four or five areas, key areas, and I will once again say reopening schools and extending small business assistance, if we agree on that, let's just pass it. Let's just have a smart, well-targeted, uh, smaller package. So what would you do, Larry, if the state-level austerity begins? In the federal government, what will be the response when you start to see that play out? States across America who are up against budget constraints can't use the bond market in the same way the federal government can. What's the response? What's the plan? What's the strategy? Well, actually, I, I will just say this. The Federal Reserve's lending facilities include a very generous tax-free municipal bond lending. Uh, so states can tap into that, and so can localities. The Fed has been very generous about backstopping uh, tax-exempt municipal-type bonds uh, so they should make use of that. I think that's a plus, particularly if you need two or three year uh, type paper. Now, the other point I'll make is it's quite true that the damage, the economic damage as a result of the pandemic uh, has damaged budgets at the federal, state and local level. No question about it. It is also true, however, revenues are coming in much stronger now as the economy picks up steam. I think there's a lot of underestimating going on and the extent to which this uh, recovery is helping all finances at all levels. Uh, revenues at the federal level have improved enormously, and they are showing great improvement at the state and local level. So I, I, I think people should put that on the table, put that on the scoreboard. You know, let's not just rush into stuff. That's been one of the issues here. Let's look at things carefully and analytically and assess them and their need. What is essential? Uh, what is smart? That's fine. But what is not essential and just throwing money at places uh, to, to fund more uh, poor management or pension funds, that's not what we want. That's a di different conversation and it's a different moment yep. in legislative time. That's all I'm saying. It might be w worthwhile. To, let's look at pensions, but not now, not the COVID. Myth. Let's have a separate item for that. Well, Larry, let's talk about a targeted effort then and the airlines specifically. The president of the United States said recently we'll be helping the airlines. You have to help the airlines. Arguably, the most free market approach to helping the airlines is not throwing aid at them. It's having a proper testing regime at airports across America and getting that New York to London corridor of which I've got skin of the game right now, Larry, on the other side at the moment, trying to work out how to get back. How we get that reopened and how we get these airlines back to work. I think that's the key for these companies. It's not about throwing money at them. It's how we establish safe testing regimes. And I'm just wondering why we haven't seen a big effort publicly to make that happen, Larry. Why not? Well, because there's been a huge effort privately, and we will be um, unveiling the uh, positives of that private effort. We are in constant communications with the air, uh, air carriers. We agree with what you're suggesting uh, with respect to testing and taking temperature and a host of other measures. We also are working with the airlines regarding contact tracing and the feasibility of that uh, without incurring too much additional expense. We're looking at uh, telephone apps 
for that. We're looking at testing before you get on the plane uh, and after you get on the plane. Uh, I mean, when you land on both sides of the pond. Uh, so you won't have to have a 14-day quarantine. We're looking very intensely at that. Uh, all that said, I will add, however, the president has said a number of times, uh, airlines are crucial. It's one of the key arteries of our economy, transportation and so forth. Um, if they need additional assistance, we stand ready to work with them to hammer out additional packages. Secretary Mnuchin is leading that charge. So we've got information, testing, yep. additional assistance on the table for the airline business. When will we hear about it, Larry? You've talked about it privately. When will we start hearing about this publicly? When is the big unveil, so to speak? Um, without a specific timetable, I, I would say it will be a matter of weeks. Not Market months, right not now years, down two and a half percent, Larry, as you and I are having this conversation, not just about big tech. I imagine there's some nervousness about the read across from a labor market that's still doing OK and what it means for the policy effort down in Washington. Raised this issue with you before. There is some cynical people among us, and I'm sure you'll appreciate that, Larry, who believe that unless the market gaps lower, there won't be any urgency down in Washington to cut a deal. Now, is the fiscal approach independent of the price action in financial markets, Larry? Well, the fiscal approach is not independent of the economy, but I don't see there's, there's no magic special formula between the stock market uh, and a possible additional assistance plan. There's, there's no direct link. There's no formula. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to go there. Uh, frankly, uh, for what it's worth, Jonathan, I think, you know, in markets, nothing goes up in a straight line. We've had a phenomenal rally in the stock market, which itself, by the way, represents confidence in the economy later this year and next year. But the tech sector uh, is undergoing a correction right now. And as you well know from your coverage down through the years, that's a fairly normal item. I don't think anybody should panic. The, the economy is definitely, definitely improving. Larry, before we let you go, I wanted to talk about something personal with you. You and I have traded some punches over the years with me sitting here and you in that position as well. Earlier this week, you talked about recovery and being 25 years sober. And I just wanted to say personally to you, congratulations, Larry, and thank you for sharing that story earlier this week. That's very kind of you, Jonathan. It's, um, it's uh, perhaps the greatest achievement of my life. And I'm most grateful uh, to my friends and family, my saintly wife. I came back to faith uh, in recovery and 12-step uh, meetings. I'm in touch with my friends all the time. Uh, the First Lady did a fabulous job yesterday. My hat's off to her. It's a delicate subject. She brought in people in recovery, uh, people who are employers and employees, in a wonderful roundtable. Uh, again, it's a phenomenal thing that the First Lady did. I was honored to participate. Uh, I would just say, Jonathan, again, thank you uh, for noticing. Look, um, as I mentioned yesterday, there's no question, uh, I would not be where I am in this position, in this job, which is the pinnacle of my professional career and a great honor bestowed on me by the president and the first lady. I would not be here if I weren't sober all well, Larry, those years. Thank you, blessed. sir. And thank you for your blessed. effort. And thanks for being here and allowing me to interrogate you every single month, as always. Larry, fantastic to catch up. Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council Director outside the White House.
One of the great strengths of Bloomberg Surveillance is you, as we welcome you on radio and television, is an eclectic view of economists. We now turn to the former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Randall Krosner, truly one of our experts in financial economics and, of course, parting that into the labor system as well. Randy Krosner, in your wonderful reading of the literature... How is our labor share doing? This is something, we'll speak to Blanche Flower uh, later, but this is something that's so important, labor getting its fair share of any economic growth presumed forward. How is our labor share? And so we certainly have seen the um, um, uh, labor share uh, decline over um, uh, over time. Uh, some of that is, is due to the way uh, labor is um, is characterized. In the uh, in the data, because of course, if you can um, make your labor income into capital gains income, you're taxed at a much lower rate. And so, there's been a very strong incentive to try to move things into what would have, in the old days, been called labor income, and move into categories that be called capital income. So that accounts for part of the uh, the transition. So just looking right now at where we are in the labor market, given this better than expected print, do you feel like there is momentum perhaps that economists have not accounted for, that they've failed to account for, given the number of positive surprises in a row? Well, I think it's great that we've gotten some positive surprises. I mean, these numbers are are of such large magnitudes that um, it's no surprise that we're, and we've never had something exactly like this before, uh, that uh, we're gonna have, have more misses. And so I think we're broadly in the same range of where people thought we would be, that the unemployment rate was gonna spike up very significantly initially. Then as the unlock occurs, you're gonna have a very um, major move down that will gradually slow down. And also, as you were mentioning before, there's an additional bump because of the uh, the census workers uh, that uh, will make the unemployment uh, rate look lower this month than uh, than otherwise. But um, if we're going to make a mistake. I'm glad we're, I'm glad things are better. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, look, it's we, we, we all are. This has been a brutal market and it's been moving from temporary layoffs to permanent ones. We've been talking about Coca-Cola and the airlines and everybody else announcing yeah. layoffs, even the companies that are doing well. I want to go to the numbers, the confusion that Michael McKee, who is brilliant and who's been doing this for years, was displaying, came from a very confusing set of data. Yesterday, we had a changed method of accounting for jobless claims. Today, there are separate surveys that are coming out. Do you feel like the data itself is more confusing than it's ever been before? Well, I think uh, that um, the fundamentals of the data are uh, are the same, but it's just the, the movements in the data in these short uh, amounts of time are so much larger than we're used to that, of course, there are going to be uh, possibilities for um, misinterpretation or uh, mis, uh, miscategorization. So I think we have to take these numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt, not because there's something wrong with numbers, but just the movements are so large that what used to be, a, you know, 100,000 was a big movement. Now it's a million. And so it's just a very different, uh, different kettle of fish. Professor Krosner, there's a raging debate, and this goes more to your wheelhouse of financial economics. And over the years, the r- debate is on the growth rate needed given the interest rates within our fiscal policy. This is, the, this is the crying worry right now of those looking at our deficit buildup. Give us your sense right now of the growth rate we need given the potential interest rates higher that we may experience. Are we near a point of worry or do we need to worry out, say, to 2025? 
I think in the longer run, there's a challenge. I mean, right now, it seems that the markets are very, very willing to finance countries that have uh, astonishingly high uh, deficits, uh, whether it's the US, uh, Japan, and a number of uh, other countries, at least of major countries, emerging market countries are facing enormous challenges, but uh, uh, some of the large uh, countries like the US are very fortunate at the moment to be seen as relatively safe, and there's a lot of money looking for those relatively safe assets. The challenge is that at some point, the chickens will come home to roost, that someone will say, well, can they really pay all of this off? We don't know exactly what will trigger that, but uh, but I think we should be worrying about that uh, in the um, uh, in, in the intermediate to longer run. And Professor, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, they go back to 1792 and say we have a confidence that the American system has always developed a growth rate over that interest rate glide path, what Peter Orzag would call the glide path out there. There's a little bit of angst right now that that may end. How do you feel about that? Well, it's, uh, that's a concern now. In the, at least the short to intermediate run, interest rates are, are are around zero. Even the ten-year rate being less than one percent. I mean, that's really unprecedented. Um, and in many other countries, we're seeing um, long-term rates be uh, be negative. And so, obviously, that makes um, a lot of um, uh, fiscal uh, fiscal spending much more uh, much more feasible when you have zero or negative rates. But if and when those rates go go up, that's when the challenge will come in. I think that's going to be at least a few years off, but we shouldn't be complacent now and say, oh, well, we can just borrow forever at, at zero and it's no problem. With that kind of attitude, you won't be borrowing for very long at zero and uh, the will come home to roost sooner. People have been saying that. We haven't seen it, but people keep saying that. I do wonder, Professor, uh, going forward, if the Fed is out of tools to improve the labor market from here. Well, I think you can't rely just on the Fed for everything. People try, try to rely on the Fed to, to, to cure all ills. There's some things that the Fed can uh, can provide uh, support for. It can provide a lot of liquidity to markets. So when things when there was market dysfunction in February, March, they were very helpful in, in that. Right now, I think it's much more the transition. Uh, we, the shock of, of COVID is really a fundamental shock to the structure of the economy. I think it's much more fundamental than what happened with the global financial crisis or with 9-11. Some parts of the economy are simply not going to be coming back, and we have to acknowledge that there's going to be a transition there, and that's going to take time. The Fed can't directly address uh, address. <clears throat> Professor Krasner, thank you so much. With the Booth School of Chicago, we're thrilled that you could join us today on this Jobs Day. Joining us now, as we just spoke with Krosner of the Booth School of Chicago, we now speak with Blanche Flower of Dartmouth College. Danny Blanche Flower, thrilled to have you with us. Danny, I want to go away from the wage dynamic this time around, and I want to go to your important research moving on from Richard Layard on happiness and age. Our happiness has been shattered in this pandemic. Explain to us the dampening impact of a pandemic on how a society moves forward to the end of that pandemic? Great question. Um, we, we have evidence around the world. I think there's two big things to it. When we had the lockdown, we had a huge collapse in well-being and happiness around the world of a scale that we've never seen before. And the census and the Office of National Statistics have tracked it. One of the things I think we're learning now is that people have adjusted a little bit. So think of a big drop and then adjustment taking place, people becoming adjusted to the fact of a new world. But this is a major shock to people's thinking and behavior. And why it matters to Bloomberg listeners is whether this 
shock and adaptation tells us that something different is coming down the road. Are there going to be behavioral changes? I was just thinking about what Mike just said. I mean, there are all kinds of things that you can look at as to what's coming. I was looking this morning at Google Trends. And if you just put the word unemployment in, what you see is that actually the thing has started to tick back up again, decline, a big rise as, un as unhappiness, if you like, rose. So people are adapting. They're thinking about what's coming. But I think what you'd see in the data is, I mean, obviously it's a great set of data today, is that people are fearful. And the question is, are they going to take different behavior going forward. But, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen a rise in depression and loneliness and all sorts of things. Um, we're seeing them start to adjust back again. But the question is, there's still a big gap and we've never seen anything like that. Are we ready for our new top line, our new nominal GDP? If we have subdued inflation and we have, let's call it subdued, even pretty good economic growth as a society, are we ready for that? Well, I think I think we're potentially ready. But again, this is a huge shock to which people are adjusting. And if you think about saying to your guests or saying to a governor of the Bank of England or to a, a, a Fed president, where are we going from here? They're going to have to say to you, Tom, it depends. It depends on the first thing that I just said is, are people going to change their behavior? What's going to happen to this virus? Um, is a vaccine coming? And then the other thing is, are people confident about what's coming forward? If you've never seen a shock downwards to your happiness like this before, are you going to start thinking in the future, well, it's happened once, maybe it's going to happen again? So, yeah, the, the world is... The world has changed, I think, and uh, 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 and my uh, your previous guest was right to say that you know this, this, this we've never seen anything quite like this before. So forecasting is difficult, Tom. Danny, what's the long-term effect on a potential lost generation? The idea that this 15 to 25-year-old cohort is facing unemployment rates close to 20 percent and facing a labor market, virtual or otherwise, that's decimated. I think that's probably the, the, the most important question. I've been trying to work on, I gave testimony to the Scottish Parliament last week on exactly this, this point. Think about, so if we're talking about firms, um, workers being on furlough, um, workers being on temporary layoff, but a big chunk of kids around the world left school in June. They graduated from college, and we know graduating from college into a bad labor market is tough, but especially think of kids coming out of high school, high school dropouts. Um, and uh, there are huge social consequences to that. We had we had huge action in the 30s. There was a civilian conservation corps, but nobody's actually really taking much action for these kids. And I think this is going to be a really stored up huge problem for us. Uh, we tried to tackle it in the 80s. It kind of went away. But I think that's going to be the number one problem going forward. What are we going to do about these young people? Are we going to give them a sense of hope or impose hopelessness on them, what are we going to do about them by November? Yeah, especially given the fact that we are facing a <coughs> backdrop of people not being able to socialize and depression and a whole right. host of other emotional issues. Nonetheless, there are no jobs. Right. The entry-level jobs have often been in the services sectors, whether it's to go work right. behind the counter at budget uh, to, to give people rental cars or at airplanes exactly. or whatever it is, or, or in your local coffee shop. What jobs are going to replace those? Well, it's going to be, it's, it's difficult to know. I and mean, obviously, we've seen a big growth in delivery drivers. We've seen Amazon and Walmart and others. We've seen home delivery of foods. 
Um, I think it's really hard to know the answer to that. I mean, it's a great question Labour economists are always asked. But if you think, think about, say, in 1990, if you ask me, what jobs are going to replace those in 2020? And the answer is I have absolutely no idea. So I think the markets will sort of fix these things. But I think, you know, we, we're going to have to... Um, basically help people through this transition um, and the fact that stimulus stopped at the end of July in the United States. I mean, no, no one's talked about that. Eventually, at some point, this stimulus and the lack of money coming into the economy, the lack of spending is going to reflect itself into the labor market, which is a lagging indicator. So it's, you know, the, these are tough ones. But um, I, I think going forward, it's going to be hard mm -hmm. to see what young people will do unless we do something dramatically for them. Uh, Professor Blanchflower, one final question. Uh, Claudia Sam joined us earlier this morning, always controversial. I will label mm -hmm. her a liberal economist. And she says, look, we got to get it going. And her statistic is a $6 trillion aid for the United States of America. What's the Blanchflower statistic? I don't want to get you in trouble with Dartmouth, but what's <laughs> your stimulus estimate that would be appropriate? Well, I think the answer is that what we learned in the past is it's uh, the, the the issue is probably doing too little, not doing too much. I mean, Claudia has obviously been pushing these kinds of issues and has been very good on it. Um, I think the answer is several trillion is going to have to have to work and have to be uh, used. We're, we're still at eight. I mean, okay, we're we're still at eight and a half percent unemployment plus another point seven because of the error. I mean, these are historically high numbers. Think where we were in March. We were at three and a half. Mm -hmm. So these are really big numbers. But I think the answer is doing too little is clearly the problem. It's hard to see what the consequences are of doing too much. If you think what Claudia said, if you did six, what would it do? Well, it would boost the economy like crazy and then Randy Crosner's right at some point then you would have to do something about it but doing too much is much better right. than doing too little I well, think that's the answer we are out of time David Blanchflower thank you so much of course at Dartmouth uh, College now in the equity markets and she has just been wonderful Gina Martin Adams has tried to give perspective she's trying to really focus on relative value versus the Many hysterias that seem to be there in this odd 2020. Gina, how did we get to the point where an index 4% pullback or a selected high flyers 8% pullback is a cause for rout, cratered, plunge? How did we get here? That's a good question. Uh, we got here by having such an extraordinary rip higher that took a lot of people by surprise, in my opinion. <clears throat> this has been an ongoing issue with this bull market that began back in 2009. Is every rally seems um, to take most investors off guard, who are general, generally have a pretty bearish outlook toward the fundamentals. Every rally starts with uh, some degree of policy infusion, Liquidity takes stocks significantly higher. Eventually, fundamentals catch up, but never to the point where investors feel completely comfortable taking on equity exposure. So I think that's very much the same this year, even though this year has been anomalous and that volatility in general has been a lot higher uh, than in past years. The fact that stocks have moved higher based on liquidity conditions does make investors feel uncomfortable. And so any sort of sell-off is a chance to feel justified. And that's why I think you hear the headlines of, you know, we've got this correction, the, the doom and gloom sort of is near, this is the beginning of something horrible. Uh, you know, that in a lot of ways, that's not different 
than the experience we've had of the last 10 years. It's just amplified by extraordinary volatility and tremendous economic uncertainty that exists this year specifically. So, Gina, when I got into this business nearly 30 years ago, I think the, the first lesson I learned or at least internalized was don't fight the Fed. Is that all I have to worry about here? I mean, I know the Fed's backstopping me here. Is that all I have to really focus on? It's not all, but it should be the foundation. Um, so I do think that that is absolutely one of the most important investment tenants is the fact that liquidity provision is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you know, the Fed balance sheet simply exploded from March to June, and it's still significantly higher than it was uh, at this time last year. We've also got rates at 0% into perpetuity as far as the market is concerned. So what you want to be concerned about is the point in time where economic conditions stabilize or get so strong that the Fed does have to pull back on the punch bowl because that's the, the most dicey time for stocks. That said, there are some uh, underlying conditions in the equity market that do cause a little bit of pause. We're at a point in time where it's very clear that the momentum uh, of some of the mega cap tech stocks got to extremes. It showed up in three sectors in the S&P 500, hitting momentum extremes that we hadn't seen in years as of last week. So we will have to see these segments of the equity market correct. If we are to sustain gains and sort of experience you know, a continuation of the uptrend, that means that as these areas of the market correct somewhat, we'll have to see a leadership transition into other sectors. Um, so I think you do want to watch a few other things. You do need to see economic momentum and essentially improve at least a little bit into 2021. If it doesn't, then we're going to have to see greater policy infusion to keep stock prices afloat. But, uh, you know, I, I'm trained the same way you are, Paul, apparently, because I completely <laughs> believe in the notion that liquidity is extremely important. And if you ignore policymakers, you're, you, you do so yeah. at your peril because it is a huge part of investment. So what's the allocation debate? I mean, I know we don't do buy, hold, sell, and I don't want you to give me, you know, like 60, 40 should be 52, blah, 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 blah. But how do you allocate Gina Martin Adams now with such an unusual yield space? Yeah, I, I think that this has been a question also that we've been asking ourselves for a, con a, a considerably fair, longer fair, period fair, of time than yeah. just 2020. But of course, again, 2020 really amplifies this question for a lot of people with rates reaching new lows across the yield curve. Um, you know, in my view, there is a very, very compelling and strong reason to move out um, in, in terms of risk and move into riskier asset classes beyond treasuries. And that compelling reason is we're starting to get a sniff of an inflation regime change. Um, you also, on top of the Fed, obviously the Fed is your most compelling reason. If the Fed is forcing you to take on risk, you pay attention and you take on some risk. I mean, 90% of the equity market is trading cheap relative to the corporate bond market, for, for example, if you compare earnings yield to mm -hmm. corporate credit yield. But if we're going to have an inflation regime change where companies are going to diversify supply chains, increasing costs, that cost is going to have to get passed on to the consumer, where liquidity conditions are extraordinarily supportive, even in an environment where inflation is printing 2 to 2.5%, 2 the Fed may not move because they're conditioned to expect right. deflationary conditions to prevail. Fiscal policymakers are going to throw everything they can at this crisis. All of these things line up to a potential for an inflation regime change. If we do see an inflation regime change, that changes the dynamics of how you want to allocate in your portfolio, because it means that bonds right. move from a long-term downtrend in yield 
to probably a longer term uptrend yeah. in yield. And that means you do want to yeah. you do want to shift the dynamics. We're seeing this argument play out in risk parity land more than anywhere yeah. right now. But I do think the allocation risk. is going to come under question. And what's point. worse is, Paul, if you go to risk parity land, you got to be quarantined <laughs> exactly. when you come back. Gina Martin Adams, thank you so much. Just always hugely valuable as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.